This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad within it. I'm Pastor Murphy. We here, the members and friends of the Great Little Zion Baptist Church, welcome you to our worship experience and pray that as you view this moment, your soul will be encouraged, your faith will be built, and you will leave this moment encouraged and empowered and ready to run on to see what God has in store for you. Be blessed as the music uplifts you and the word empowers you in Jesus' name. Welcome to our worship experience.
Make sure to join us on Wednesday at 6 p.m. for our prayer meeting and our virtual adult Bible study this Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. We will also be having our youth and young adult Bible study session Saturday at 10 a.m. and our adult Sunday school session every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. Thanks for joining us for our quick announcements today, and we pray that you have a blessed, wonderful week in the Lord.
Once again, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad within it. Today, we want to draw your attention to the book of Genesis chapter 39. And we're going to pick up our reading, Genesis chapter 39, verses 6, clause C, through verse 10. Genesis chapter 39, verse 6, clause C. And then we'll proceed to verse 10 for conclusion. Genesis chapter 39, verse 6 through 10. Here's what it says, the word of the Lord. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And it came about as she spoke to Joseph day after day that he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Word of the Lord. Today we want to preach from the subject, a change is going to come. A change is going to come. It was December the 14th, 1964. He was just 33 years of age at his untimely death. But Sam Cooke is remembered as a musical genius, along with being an advocate fighter for social justice. But it was in 1962, a song that was sung by Bob Dylan, entitled Blowing in the Wind, that became a seed that germinated in the creativity of Sam Cooke. Dylan's song had protest language in very diverse fashions to address the multiple ills 
of the era in terms of social injustice, in terms of civil rights, as well as the Vietnam War. His song kept raising the rhetorical question about race, war, peace, and freedom. It went like this. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? That appears to raise the question of how do we identify and bring consecration to the humanity of each and every individual. He says, how many times must the cannonballs fly before they are forever banned? He's dressing the issues of death and even lynching by the use of both weaponry as well as the lynching tree. He raises the question, how many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? Is he not talking about freedom? Freedom from oppression and injustice that in that era can be seen all over at least the landscape of America, but even now the same has to still be said. Or he raises the question, how many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? He's speaking directly to those who in ignore the injustice that they know happens every single day right before their eyes. But rather than to do the correct thing, to get involved and correct the injustice, they just simply remain silent. Here's another one. How many ears must one man have before he can hear people cry? No doubt his reference was to the crying of those babies and women, children, even men in the Vietnam War. But those who were of Vietnam or Vietnamese descent experiencing the injustice of Americans' aggression he is raising Bob Dylan the question, how many ears does a man have to have before he can hear the cries of those children, of those mothers, of those men being killed by Nepal in Vietnam? But at each question, he poses the answer. He says the answer is blowing in the wind. He does one more. He says, how many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died? And he closes the song by saying, yes, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. It's blowing in the wind. Blowing in the wind simply meant that it's right there, present in the eyes of those who need to see it but they need to stop ignoring that they feel the blowing of the wind because they know that injustice is present before their eyes. Sam Cooke wanted to write such a song for himself. He had never written a political statement in terms of music and he felt that Dylan's song, no doubt, was a powerful political statement. But he had a fear, and his fear was that in writing such, he would damage his 
white base of listeners. Sam Cooke's music was so awesome that he was listened to both white and blacks across the country. He feared losing them, so he never wrote a song about the frustrations of African-American social injustice until one day he was making a trip to Louisiana. And when he got there, he attempted to check into a motel and he was denied a hotel stay because of his African-American descent, but more pointedly, because of the imposing of Jim Crow laws. He was irate and disappointed, was having it out with the manager. His wife told him we needed to leave or else they would end up not only arresting you, but possibly killed you. But Sam Cooke was adamant that he was going to do something about this. And so he left. But later, he had to spend the night in the car, and it was in the car, in the midst of his sleep, that he contends that he got a dream. And in that dream were the lyrics of the one song that he sold the most hits of, and incredibly, he only sung it one time in his entire musical career. Obviously, it wouldn't have been sung earlier because it didn't get published until 1964, but yet, he only had a chance to sing it one time, and just a few months later, he was killed in Los Angeles. But that song hovered under the title, A Change Is Gonna Come. And those of you who are children of the 60s and children of the R&B 70s, we know those lyrics, I was born by a river in a little tent. And oh, just like the river I've been running ever since, it's been a long time coming, a long time coming, but I know a change is gonna come. It's been too hard of living, but I'm not afraid, but I am afraid to die. I don't know what's up there beyond the sky. It's been a long time coming, but a change is going to come. Now you had to have been a listener of the original version to hear the next line or the next uh, lyric because it's not in the modern lyrics or the modern songs we have now. For some reason it was cut out. But the next line went, I go to the movie and I go downtown. Somebody keep telling me don't hang around. It's been a long, a long time coming but I know a change is going to come. Then comes the pertinent one. Then I go to my brother and I say, brother, help me please. But he winds up knocking me back on my knees. There have been times that I thought I couldn't last for long, but now I think I'm able to carry on. It's been a long, long, a long time coming, but I know a change is going to come. Now, you might ask the question, Pastor, how in the world do you take in parallel Bob Dylan, Sam Cooke with the story of Joseph? Well, it's simple. It's simple because I'm making the point that Joseph had his own A Change is Going to Come anthem allowed in his own spirit, in his own life, it sparked the determination in his life that touched on 
perseverance, and it pushed on his ability to stay committed to the dream instead of complaining about the circumstance. In that amazing gap between the end of chapter 37 and the beginning of chapter 39, it tells me that Joseph's faith and hope kept him from becoming spiritually shipwrecked. His consecration in terms of belief in God and his belief that God would absolutely bring to pass what he promised him permitted his faith not to shipwreck but to continue to sail until he got unto his destination. He may not have understood his circumstance but he seemed to somehow maintain his confidence in God. And therein lies the challenge of being able to believe that God can and God will when the circumstance may suggest opposite. That's what made that song of Sam Cooke so meaningful even to him, 1963 to 1964. It was nothing but a time that sparked the very opposite that a change was going to come. Everything that took place seemed to suggest to Sam Cooke and even to those of us who were living at that time that nothing was on the horizon in terms of a change. But he, Sam Cooke, believed in the trumpeting of his vision by way of lyrics, a change is going to come. And although he lived to see the 1964 Civil Rights Act passed in the month of July, yet he didn't see the fruit of dismantling Jim Crow segregation. But he kept on believing that a change was going to come. We must admit that Joseph's confidence could only be increased himself as he kept witnessing his progress and prosperity from being a slave in Potiphar's house to now being a prosperous man in Potiphar's house. Remember on last week, I had made clear to you that Joseph entrusted his vision to God for his next victory. And what Joseph was really doing was walking in the words of Psalm 37 in verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do this. Bring it to pass. When you commit your way, he will bring it to pass. But there is something even powerful more about the words that come from Proverbs chapter 16 and particularly verse 1, 2, and 3. Proverbs chapter 16 verses 1, 2, and 3 and listen to what it says. The plans of the heart belongs to man but the answer of the tongue is in the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives of his heart. Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. The writer of Proverbs makes it clear, you may have the plans, but it's God's grace and mercy that will bring about the execution bring about the favor, bring about the success. In fact, 
following Proverbs 16, 1 through 3, highly suggests that a change can come in your own current situation now. It would be Pharaoh who would later convey to us what he believed was the key to Joseph's life, what made him the successful, prosperous man that he was. And believe it or not, it was Pharaoh who identified the Holy Spirit in the life of Joseph. Read Genesis chapter 41 and verse 38, and here's what Pharaoh said, raising the question, can we find anyone like this man, Joseph, one in whom the Spirit of God resides? He recognized that there was something more than mortal operating in the life of Joseph. Why is this important? And remember in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people to empower them for a certain assignment. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of every believer, which says to us now that you don't have to ask for special power or further indwelling of the Spirit. You just need to yield to commit to submit yourself to the divine direction of God through the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit through the Word of God who will provide the ability to allow you to commit instead of complain about the spiritual situation. But all of this high recognition of Joseph's journey is about to move from the test of the pit to the temptation of Mrs. Potiphar. Joseph's life is about to shift from willfully celebrating to being wrongfully convicted from being victorious to being a victim. In our text, Mrs. Potiphar is recognized, obviously, as a human being. But keep in mind, Mrs. Potiphar is not always a man or a woman. Mrs. Potiphar sometimes could be a moral issue, an ethical issue, a situational context, a habitual problem, a spiritual Problem. In essence, Mrs. Potiphar is simply a temptation. And I want you to observe that Mrs. Potiphar is quite the strategic person. She understood very clearly what it very well would take to at least try to tempt Joseph in bringing him to her powers. Notice what the text says to us if you read it closely in her strategic maneuvering. First, pick up in her strategic efforts her observation, her observation. Look at what the text says in verse 6 and 7. It says that when she looked at him, look what the Bible says. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came about that after these events that his master's wife looked at Joseph, looked at him. She took notice of his physical attributes, of his political maneuvering, of his mannerisms, 
and probably even of his spiritual exercise of ethic and moral composition. She took notice of who Joseph was. And let me remind you that whenever you are on assignment, you are on the course to get to the destiny to fulfill the dream, the vision, there will be those who observe you and there will be those who will have the motive of not being there to encourage you but to discourage or to find a way to throw you off course to enable you to begin to believe your own press release. She noticed the physical appearance of Joseph and it was her conviction that that physical appearance would cause Joseph to relinquish all of the giftedness and the privilege and the power and the favor he had just to have a moment with her. And you've got to remember that the enemy is always busy trying to show you that there is something better beyond where you currently are in journey of your destiny. Remember he did the same thing to Jesus in Matthew 4. He began to present to him three different scenarios and each time Jesus responds with an affirm word. It is written. It's written because it's the word of God that will help you discern when one's observation has the intent of doing damage instead of being encouraging to you. And it was in this taking notice that Mrs. Potiphar saw that Joseph was handsome, Joseph was bright, Joseph was holy, Joseph was humble, and trust me, as I said before, the opposite, evil, notices and observes your spiritual progress, your physical progress, as well as your earthly prosperity because the intent is to knock you off. Listen to Jesus in John 10.10. 10. The thief comes not but for to steal, kill, and destroy. But says Jesus, I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Watch when everyone has an observation to make of your journey. Keep your eyes on the prize because they'll constantly be observing. But there's another thing about Miss Potiphar. She felt that her observation gave her the inroad to go to the next point, and that is in verse 7, the invitation. She provided the observation, but she also thought now it was time after looking at Joseph, licking her chops, assuming that this is something, he is someone to which she was wanting to devour, Look at what chapter seven, uh, verse 7 says in chapter 39. She poses her invitation. Look at the text. It says that the master's wife, Potiphar's wife, had a desire at Joseph, and she said to him, lie with me. Some translations come to bed with me. Now, I want to quickly interject something. Maybe it's not a sexual invitation. 
maybe not at the outset it's intended to be sexual. Perhaps it's just a tease or an arousal or to set in motion her trap. Some scholars suggest that this behavior by Mrs. Potiphar would not have been abnormal for the wife of a husband with such status like a pharaoh. His constant political meetings, his ongoing absence from the home, his lacking of maintaining husband-wife interaction and attention would have certainly caused Mrs. Potiphar and any other woman to wander and to peruse in other places. The further suggestion has been that the invitation, the initially invitation, as I said, had nothing perhaps to do with sex, but could it have been the acquisition of power over Joseph that Mrs. Potiphar did not have? You think about it, Joseph had a lot of power to be second in command in the house of Potiphar. Arguably more power than Potiphar's wife had. And perhaps she saw this as a easy opportunity to gain more power for herself. In fact, the risk and the adventure would have made the pursuit exciting for Mrs. Potiphar. The invitation also could have meant having access to the prohibited possession that others only dreamed of. Can you imagine that Joseph would have been arguably the man who would have had access to Potiphar's wife and there were other men who only dream, only dream of being with a woman like Mrs. Potiphar. And yet, Joseph gets an invitation to come and lie with me. But when you hear invitations, you've got to be spiritually discerning enough to not only hear where the invitation is coming from, but all of the composition that's making up that invitation. As old folk would say that everything that shines is not gold and the grass may not be green on the other side that it seem or assumes to be. You have to look at things and weigh in Weigh in the balance, is it worth the risk of trading what I currently have to pursue what's being offered to me? Because it may look presenting initially, but it may not be worth the risk. And I'm convinced when you read the Joseph story that he makes it clear that because a change has come in his life, he's not about to risk it. Look at his response. His response tells us that Joseph had an internal conviction, sanctification, and made it clear that his holiness caused him not to hesitate in his response. And listen to what he says. In verse 8, the Bible says he refused. He refused and said, 
to his master's wife. No hesitation. Don't toy with the devil when there is an invitation to compromise because you can't defeat the devil on his own ground. When the invitation which will lead to temptation comes, take the advice of James in James chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. He says in verse 7, when you talk about temptation, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But you've got to put up a fight. You've got to be willing and determined that I'm not going to yield, that I'm not going to give up, and I'm not going to relinquish the change that God has brought in my life for something of less value or of something that I have absolutely no idea what is going to bring me in the end. I already know what God will bring because he's already done it for me too many times. And so because he keeps bringing changes, he keeps bringing victory, he keeps bringing more power, more stability. I'm not willing to compromise it. And Joseph says, no, absolutely. And James says, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. <clears throat> draw near to God and God will draw near to you. Verse eight, cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded. Joseph says, you can't play on both sides of the fence. It's a dangerous game and there's a good chance you are not gonna win. And so he argues, stay committed to the God who brought the change in your life. And in verse nine, James says, here it is. It's difficult to interpret this verse, but listen to what it means. He tells us to commit to God, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Then he tells us in verse nine, be miserable, cry that you missed, that you resisted the temptation. That's what he means. He says, better to cry now that you resisted than to cry later when you have to live with the consequences of yielding to the temptation. That's Joseph's way of saying to us that when Mrs. Potiphar came, my holiness, which is anchored in the grace and provision of God caused me to say absolutely, as the text says in verse eight, no, I refuse to do that. I refuse to do that. I'd rather cry in misery now than to yield to you and cry in misery because I've been beaten by the temptation I yielded to. And then he says in verse 10, be humble in the presence of the Lord and God will exalt you. And that's what happens to Joseph's journey. That's what will happen on your journey when you refuse to give in to the invitation and the observations of evil. God will bring you victory because of your sanctification. Now let me share this with you and then I'm gonna close, I'm done. Listen to what the text says. 
Joseph responds the way that he does. And I want to say, because Joseph knows, number one, he's got favor. Listen to what the text says in verse 8 and 9. He says, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. I got favor knowing that I was once a slave, and now I'm at the head of my master's household. I was once in poverty, but now I'm in prosperity. I was once sick and ill, but now I'm whole. I was once unemployed, but now I am employed. I was once uneducated, but now I am educated. Why would I compromise and give up all the blessings and the progress that God has brought in my life? And arguably, I want you to say the same thing that he's brought in your life. Not to relinquish it, but to bask in the fact that you got favor. You recognize that where you are employed is by the grace of God. You recognize that where you live is by the provision of God opening doors. It's God providing the opportunity for you to make the money that you make. Why relinquish or risk when I know I've got favor and I've gotten opportunities that I know that it had to be God? Look what he says in verse 9. There is no one greater in this house than me. And he has withheld nothing from me. Why would I risk that, Mrs. Potiphar, when he has given me favor? But Joseph also knows that he's got a future. See, he knows that if Potiphar has given everything he owns and entrusted it to his care, I got a future. As long as I continue to do the great things that I've been doing, my future is secure. And that's what God is trying to tell us in this moment in which we're on the journey. As long as you keep doing the things that honor me and you keep obeying the word and you keep entrusting and believing the word, you got a future. Your future is nothing but bright. Joseph knows he's got favor. Joseph knows he's got a future. But Joseph also knows he has boundaries. See, look what he says. Once again, in verse 9, I'm not only the greatest one in the house, but my master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. See, he, he, he makes that clear. There are boundaries. And one way to maintain your own holiness and sanctification is to recognize you not only have divine boundaries, but you've got to set some boundaries for yourself as well. You've got to be determined that if you're in the field of business or in the field of caring for people, you're going to maintain ethical standards. You're going to maintain moral standards. There are lines that you're not going to cross. You're not going to compromise just to get ahead. There are boundaries they are there to protect 
you. And Joseph knows that boundary has been placed there and I'm not about to cross it. And I'm not about to cross it, says Joseph, because in those boundaries, I know my conviction. See, listen to what he says at the end of verse 9. Not only has he withheld you because you are his wife, look at this question. How then could I do this great evil, here it is, his conviction, and sinned against God? Because he knows that even if he yields and lies with Mrs. Potiphar, becomes intimate with Mrs. Potiphar, engage in unethical or immoral behavior, Mrs. Potiphar, he knows that although no one may not know but he and Mrs. Potiphar, he knows that God will know. And the God that has given him such favor and has brought such change in his life from the pit now to the palace, why would I risk sinning against God who loved me so much that he looked beyond my fault and saw my needs. See, that's the point for us to shout right there because when you think about how God could have permitted judgment or the consequence to come out because of our experiences and our actions, instead, we found favor. But we maintained our conviction when we were approached with a moment to compromise, we stood on our convictions. We stood on our covenant with God. And as a result now, we are shouting because of what God has done in return. And that's what Joseph does. And so Joseph, in this final point, reminds us that he remained faithful to the revelation that God had given him despite Mrs. Potiphar's persistency because he wouldn't let it change his conviction. Look at verse 10. It came about as she spoke to Joseph day by day. Understand, because you resist temptation, because you resist evil, because you resist sin, because you resist the devil, he may go away today, but he's coming back. He's coming back again. Opportunities that will compromise your standards are coming back again. And you've got to be strong in your convictions. Look what it says. Day after day, she kept after Joseph, trying to get him to compromise his position to compromise and to cross the boundaries, to compromise and to risk his future, to compromise and destroy the favor on his life. And Joseph wouldn't do it. Look at what the text says. That he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. That answers the question. Whether her invitation was sexual in terms of sexual intercourse or just being intimate by way of laying, lying and cuddling, it doesn't matter, says Joseph. I'm not interested because I got too much favor on my life. And the change that has come 
that helps me recognize that there are going to be other changes that are going to come as well. That God has a bright future for me. And God has the same for you. Don't compromise when they make their observation. Don't compromise when evil and sin poses its invitation to participate in temptation. But hold your ground on your conviction. And God will not only see you through, but will give you such treasured reward on the other side of through. A change is going to come if you remain faithful. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for our time in the word this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name that in this moment of Joseph's life, that he shows us how powerful and how wonderful it is to persevere with the word of God. Just as Jesus stood his ground, Father, help us to stand our ground as well as you taught your son, as you taught Joseph. Now teach us how to resist evil how to flee from the devil, how to stand on the word and trust the Holy Spirit to bring us victory. Today, Lord, I pray that somebody comes to know your son as Lord and Savior. I pray that somebody's life today, Lord, begins to change. The change is coming. They're beginning to experience a newness of life. They're beginning to crawl out of the pit and make their way to the palace. And we want to give you the praise in advance as you are making those steps of progress in their life. We thank you. We honor and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. My brothers and sisters, if today has been a moment in which you have made a decision to trust Christ, we always want to know because it gives us a chance to rejoice with you and it gives us another piece of evidence that the gospel indeed does work. We want to honor the Lord for each of you who kindly each and every month give contribution to the ministry. Thank you so much. We encourage you to continue to do so. Allows us to be able to bring forth the gospel. And we also want you to know that if you're not a member of any church, it would be our joy to have you come and be a part of the Great Little Zion Baptist Church. We would love to be your church family, and I would love to be your pastor. Listen, we pray that God continues to bless you. Always know that God loves you and so do I. And I want you to have a blessed, wonderful, victorious week in the Lord. We're going to prepare our hearts and minds now to come together to break bread at the Lord's table. Your faith may be shaken, agree and keep saying, He will make it all right. Just worship and waiting, even if things look crazy, it's yours for the taking. He will make, he will make it all right. It all right. 
We are excited at this moment. We are here gathered around the sacred altar, the communion table. We invite you to pick up your elements and come and join us in this virtual moment as we come together to break bread as our Lord did along his disciples. The Bible tells us that Jesus had gathered around with his disciples in that upper room. And on that evening, he took bread. And the Bible says he looked unto heaven and gave thanks for it. And then he gave it to his disciples that they may eat and share in that moment of the meal. As Jesus and his disciples did eat together, I invite you, let us eat together as one. Likewise, when they had finished, Jesus took the cup, looked unto heaven, and he not only told the disciples that in that cup was a new covenant, and that word that he shared with them to love one another as he has loved them. But he looked into heaven and gave thanks for it. And then he gave it to his disciples to drink symbolically that that love would run from heart to heart and breast to breast. As Jesus and his disciples did drink together, let's you and I drink together at this time. And when they finished, they sung a hymn, went out into the Mount of Olives rejoicing, celebrating that they had a chance to commune once again, one with another. As always, it is my privilege, it is our joy that we've had this privilege to break bread together. Let's leave this virtual communion moment excited about participating in communion, but more importantly, looking forward to a great week that God has in store for us. Be blessed as the kingdom of God continues to shine on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Just worship and waiting, even if things look crazy, it's yours for the taking. He will make, he will make. He will make.